Hello and welcome back to this episode of the Inquisitor podcast with Ian Moyes, longtime sales leader and sales director at NASA Box. Ian, welcome. Hi, good morning, Marcus. Thanks for coming on. Could you give the listeners a couple of minutes on your journey, how you got to where you are today? Short, very short. Started as a computer programmer, so I was passionate about the technology. Saw an opportunity to be inside sales where money, car, mobile phone attracted me, you know, all the shiny stuff many, many years ago. So I took the step into inside sales thinking, do you know what? I know what I'm talking about from the techno- the factual piece. piece. But do you know what? That was an eye-opener. So I didn't know what I was doing in sales, hadn't had any training. So I just worked incredibly hard, got promoted to field sales as a channel manager. So I was in the channel at that time, served in the channel for many, many years. So I know you, you're passionate and have written many times on, on the challenges in channel. And recent, probably in the last 10 years, I moved into running direct sales teams which my view of the channel, I'd already done that anyway. What I'd done in the channel was run sales teams who knew how to sell to the end customer, but knew how to leverage and partner with a channel to achieve that goal. So it wasn't that big a step for me. And I've been in cloud technology for the last 13 years, running and leading sales teams. And I've been running sales teams for about 25 years, fell into it through doing well in sales, being in the right place at the right time and an opportunity came up. And I know that's one of your Progress. I know you've mentioned on previous <laughs> podcasts around promoting salespeople, so I'm happy to answer there. Did the good, the bad, and the ugly. Did I know what I was doing? But hopefully, I do today. Many years on, and a lot of success. So that, that's sort of the background. So I now run a uh, European sales team for a cloud telephony provider called Natabox. Excellent, thank you. So Ian, let's start off with in terms of sales. When you've been speaking to CEOs. What are the four most common questions that you find them asking you about your competencies within sales? And I'm curious to then explore the three questions that they really ought to ask, but don't. Yeah, let's debate that a bit. So my engagement with CEOs in in that respect, not selling to them, but understanding on the sales aspect, I've been through the interview role with many CEOs, being interviewed as a sales leader. And also, I get involved in a number of sales organizations and events where you get those conversations. So that's my context for where it's coming from. And I think typically, a lot of what I get is there's a mix. There's either too basic a question, just where's the number? Don't care how you do it, just get what's the number. Don't care about the issues, don't care about the challenges. It's just a number, black and white, have you got it, have you not? With no color or understanding around it. I hear comments such as you should, you know, have these rules where you just cut the lowest selling rep every quarter. Just, and I think that's old stuff, but that still professes, particularly at, that, at, the, at the C level. And I see a lot also driving behaviors of the old style purely around numbers activity. How many calls have gone on? How many, they just want to look at pure activity. And that's a whole debate we might move into, you know, activity and its correlation with productivity. But I see a lot measuring things on very high-level metrics, and it's a black and white. That sales rep's not good, therefore get rid of them with no color around it and no understanding of all the dynamics that go below. So tend to look at stats and numbers and make broad decisions, which as a sales leader, what I've watched and experienced is if you're not a strong sales leader and you just follow the yes, sir, three bags full, sir, then... I think have a negative impact on the sales culture and the motivation of your team. You know, it absolutely you listen to your CEO, but you've also got to be prepared to manage upwardly and push back, understanding what's happening at the street level, which you should do as a sales leader and not be so distanced and be able to manage and support the team in the right way to get the team productive and to get the business supporting the outcome that it wants but in terms of understanding the right buttons to push. So I think sometimes what happens is CEOs look at pure data and correlate that straight away to push this button and try and enforce that downwards through the sales organization. I think you're spot on. Typically, many CEOs who don't really come from a sales background have a tendency to think that sales is a numbers game. I think that is madness. Anyone who thinks it's a numbers game clearly has no idea about sales. Measuring activity, frenetic activity on the way to the grade, is not managing sales. That's mismanaging it. What really matters is meaningful action. 
it's the number of unique effective conversations a rep has each day to fill that pipeline. It's the velocity with which opportunities are moved through or out of the pipeline so that the pipeline is kept clean and that you can forecast with high degree of accuracy so you can plan and you can invest. It's making sure that you've got enough opportunities so that you have choice, so that you can walk away from any business. You never have to discount. You can push back when buyers are trying to push sales to the end of the quarter or the end of the month or end of the period in order to get you in a fire sale. And I think hiring is often very badly misunderstood. There is no one size fits all. Mike Weinberg has a lovely way of defining most salespeople, which is zookeepers. They're good at maintaining, but and all they've got to do is feed the animals but, and just not let them escape. But then you have farmers. You've never killed an elephant with a plow. So you, know, you need your hunters. And your hunters come in two forms, those with shotguns, who have a more scattergun approach, and then snipers. And I think too often there is an approach and the compensation, the recruitment process has a one-size-fits-all mentality. They're asking the wrong questions. They're tracking lagging indicators. And then they put loads of pressure on sales leadership, who put it on sales management, who then pour it down onto the salespeople. And it creates a broken sales culture where you end up with a revolving door. You elevate those who perform independently and you don't invest effectively. And the other thing that I see happen all the time, which drives me crazy as player managers, absolutely bizarre, that you would expect someone to focus their, split their focus of attention on their own number that they have to produce versus looking after their people and helping them produce to their peak. And under pressure, the manager will always revert to focusing on their own production target. So management goes by the wayside, and then you end up with a broken sales culture where the 80-20 rule applies. You don't elevate the middle 60%, and you don't focus any attention on recruitment. Um, So I think those are very common problems that I see day to day. What are the three questions they really ought to be asking you? I think things such as, and this is what I ask my team, right? And it should ripple down. What obstacles do you need to remove most? And I, I see sales leadership, and I'd be interested in your opinion, but is a big part of it is remove the barriers. And salespeople always have excuse kickbacks, right? Of here's <laughs> the reason I can't do it, right? So, so I get that, but I always want to hear from them. If you've got 10 salespeople, right, give me your top five, or top three, whatever you want to work to it, and manage what you're doing number, correlate them, and there'll be some commonality, right? And if it's something that's affected one deal, is it something we need to fix or was it an edge case? But it is constantly pushing for, okay, what is the barrier? And it may be motivational barriers in terms of how commissions, expenses aren't paid regularly enough, and I spend loads of time chasing, et cetera, et cetera, et cetera. Shouldn't be an issue, right? So, okay, it's a niggle. It's not affecting your sales, but it's affecting your demeanor and your focus, right? Or it could be a process issue of how we get orders out or how a different division were, or I haven't got this sales. Whatever it is, understand what they are, identify the ones that have the most impact, remove them, and then keep doing that cyclically. Because the excuse bag goes, right? I've got your performance should keep going up for your team because your excuses have gone, guys. Don't give, don't give me another, another barrier. Now, like, it's why you're still not performing. And I think it's also a good, healthy thing to do in terms of showing your commitment and investment to the team that. If I remove those barriers, if you're going to put the ball in goal, and to take uh, your analogy, I sniper the goalie out, you can't miss, right? I've set you up to win. You know, that's one is, I think, coming downwardly from above to the sales leadership is what's impeding your sales team being successful? Because the sales leader will have peers in the business that hopefully have the relationship they'll sort it themselves. But if not, the CEO can sort processes can sort things out across the business that are dragging sales, often what I've witnessed is back into going backwards. Maybe you've done a sale, there's things now being effective to that. You want to look forward with the next sale, but your salespeople are getting dragged back into the ones they've already done and spending a lot of time on, whether it's collecting money, whether it's whatever is going on, if they're being dragged backwards, that's less time they're spending looking forwards and it's also a negative on them. So that's one big one. Why can't the CEO for the right reason, come out and see what the reality is going on. 
That's a good one. I mean, I do that. It's I want to know what's going on at street level. What are you really facing? Not the anecdotal I'm getting back of all oh, we can't sell because of this feature or this. Is listening and meeting customers and understanding both with existing customers and new ones. What's the reality, and how can I impact that from above? And that may be through the product division. It might be that reality is customers are viewing your brand or your positioning. It doesn't align and marketing needs to change or the browser. So something the CEO can affect, but get them out there. Why can't they ask to, can I come out and see some meetings for the right reasons? And it makes salespeople nervous, right? If, if someone's seeing you, <laughs> you know, why are you trying to get an eye on me? But I see it as a positive of you leveraging that in the right customer makes the customer feel important, gives the customer a voice. And if positioned in the right way is turned into a fantastic positive. I'm always using exec bridging wherever possible, regardless of get, making sure people above know the realities of the challenges of sales, the pros and the cons, but also to help the salesperson win the business. And, you know, I think there's nothing wrong with them asking, how can I help the biggest thing I think, rather than reading data and instructing, it's better to have a, what's the reality? You tell me. You tell me what the data points are and let me get a real view of it. And that, that would be my view, is to really understand the reality, not the perception. Perceptions, I think, is a very dangerous thing. I think those are really valid. I see managers' functions as hiring the best people, getting the best out of them, and that means onboarding them properly, training them properly, coaching regularly with a regular cadence, and doing it professionally, not just turn up and then talk at them and getting out into the field. Managers who live in an ivory tower writing spreadsheets or writing the CRM are pointless. They, they have no function in business as far as I'm concerned. I don't think you're adding value to the salesperson, and I think you don't you know. earn your credibility. For me, if and salespeople I've had are nervous, oh, well, don't say that. It's like, fine, I'll take your input. But when they see how you perform to compliment them in a meeting and help them move something forward – and that you do know what you're talking about, you earn their respect 10 times more than sitting back in a meeting room telling them things because they've seen you do it. And also, what I also share with them is, I don't know it all. I'll learn from them because they've had a different experience as a sales individual and they will do things differently that I may don't know. So I always position them, I'd like to come out so we can learn from each other and help each other win this. It's in both our interest to win this client. And let's make them feel loved and important that you're bringing your director, your manager, whatever out. Is he really, is really interested in the nature of whether it's their business? He's passionate about the business you're in or he used to work in something. Or we knew someone. Find some tagged reason that it isn't. I'm bringing my manager out because he's asked to come out on meetings with me, which just doesn't show good value to the client, right? Implicates when well, the manager doesn't trust you. It also undermines the salesperson unless there is a clear demarcation of role. And if a higher up comes on a sales call, the salesperson is the captain and the CEO or the sales director is crew. They only respond with the salesperson's permission. And that means you have to have rehearsed and planned roles and functions. Totally agree. And in coaching, it's also a learning experience for the manager. And in the coaching environment, you have to offer potency, protection, and permission, which means that the manager will not punish the salesperson for telling their truth. It doesn't go beyond the four walls, and they both need to have the right to say their piece, and both sides need to feel empowered to be able to tell the truth. Otherwise, it will not work. And when you're going on a ride with, you know, windscreen training going out to, into the field, then the opportunity for a sales manager or a sales director or a CEO to see what's really happening in the field is key. It's not about trying to catch the salesperson out. It's trying to learn as to what you can do in order to help them get better and to take those lessons and share them with other people in the team. And the third thing, which you touched on already, is that the third function of a manager after hiring the best people and getting the best out of them is making sure that they have the tools and resources to do their best work every day. And the fourth is to make sure that you're protecting them from acts of idiocy and sabotage from senior management and making sure that there's a two-way flow of communication and that people feel empowered, feel that they have the right to make mistakes and take risks without fear of being punished. Because 
Otherwise, what you'll end up with is a very anodyne and vanilla and bland sales approach, which will make you sound and feel like everybody else. And in a crowded, competitive market, it's critical that you differentiate in how you sell, not what you sell. And if the CEO comes out on sales meetings to customers, it sends a fantastic message so long as they don't play the big I am and they are there to listen and pay attention and to hear and act on what they hear. And I think, Marcus, that comes back to what I was saying earlier, is you've got to manage upwardly, right? You've got to, as a sales leader, be able to manage upwardly to that CEO that they will take guidance from you of how to play that meeting and not exactly as you say, come in and just ram raid the meeting and disrupt and take it down a different path than it was intended to. So to your point, you need preparation beforehand, not just wheel up and meet two minutes before and go straight in. So I always aim in those times to prep beforehand, do a briefing. So what's the customer about where we got to, what the challenges, what the individuals, personas, boom, boom, boom. And then also meet an hour before for coffee. And, you know, I've seen that where, A, you've got contingency for travel, particularly if it's in the city or something. So you live with that, right? But, you know, if I've got a, a nine o'clock meeting in the city, I'll invariably be there at 7.30. Let's meet for coffee at eight. And we've taken the panic and stress out of the travel. And we've got time to re-go through the notes. Doesn't hurt, right? You can't prepare too much. And you go in knowing exactly how you're going to do it. And you've briefed upwardly. And I think too often that's missed of because someone's got a title, they'll take precedence. So we'll just turn up and here's my CEO. And you just hand it over to them and let them talk without having briefed them and guided them. And then they may come out with something or talk about futures or, oh, we got this coming next year. And the customer then, that's great. I'll wait till that then. I think it's critically important you also manage upwardly as a sales leader. And that's a big mistake I think gets made as well. Well, I think I'd take that further. I firmly believe that given the incredibly high cost of acquiring a good quality lead and turning that into an opportunity, I believe it is an act of gross misconduct for a salesperson to turn up unprepared. And by prepared, I mean they need a written pre-call plan. They need to have rehearsed it. Different permutations, positive, neutral, negative prospect. They need to have identified the likely objections and questions that are asked, rehearsed how they're going to respond. They need to be prepared for contingencies. They need to have identified who says what, when what the conditions are under which someone may speak. So, you know, a really good rule of thumb is that if the salesperson is captain and everyone else is crew, then if the CEO is asked the question, the CEO turns to the salesperson and waits for permission. And the salesperson either chooses to respond with a question for clarification or gives the CEO the nod. And then the CEO responds following three basic rules. The answer must do no harm. So don't talk about the roadmap six months down the road so it causes a delay. It must do no harm. It must be as short as possible because the objective is not to give information, it's to gather information. And the third thing is it must end on a question mark so that it then puts the power back into the salesperson's hands because the prospect is responding to a question. And that needs rehearsal. So for every hour you're in front of the prospect, my recommendation is a minimum of three hours of rehearsal. Now, a lot of people push back and say, well, we're too busy for all of that. Well, part of the reason most people are too busy is because you're doing a shit job of qualification. You're not preparing. And 83% of your first meetings don't result in a second meeting. So you're always scrabbling around to fill the top of the funnel. So it looks like Dolly Parton. And then you're not driving enough opportunities through it. And they're getting constipated, so it ends up looking like Kim Kardashian. And your objective is to make sure that funnel looks like a pair, you know, G-string. So it's wide at the top, it's narrow at the bottom, and all the good stuff is coming out at the end where you are clearly moving stuff forward, you're getting the right kind of business, you're not spending your time chasing anything to look busy and keep your mortgage paid. But again, that comes down to compensation and what you measure. So what are the things that you are recommend or that you are measuring in your sales team in order to ensure that they're focused on the right behaviors that move the sale forward or out? Some basics, right? And this, for me, 
we have simple dashboards in Salesforce. And I think you can have too many, right? I see too many people overanalyzing and get it, getting incredibly clever with 42 complex dashboards that no one understands. So I look for, and I'm really, I'm, this is basics, right? But I look for what's in the pipe and the value and what stage it's at and, and is it moving forward? Has it got stuck? You know, are, well, are we, is information being gathered and gained along the way? So I have uh, balances that tot up to a, what do we know about this client? So at, at, right at the stage, just had, had a first conversation with them. I don't expect you to have a 100% score. And there's a scoring system. You're not, right? You're going to gather information, but you're not going to drill them with 400 questions on the first call. There's a bit of earning respect and getting what you can get. But as you move through, that should be higher. So you shouldn't be getting to, you know, we've got a 75% through the pipe op where I only have a 7% score on information collected. What have you been doing as it's moved through the pipe, number one? And two, you've got no chance of having predictability of closing it because you don't know what you don't know. So we have a lot of data that needs to be collated and understood. So it's for me, it's all about questioning and collecting information to your point of, you know, it, it's about getting information, not telling. So that's rated. So I have scores all the way through where I can see the intelligence score, we call it, that we've got about every customer engaging with that's in the pipe. So if you tell me it's going to close, but your intelligence score is incredibly low, either you're not filling the stuff in the CRM in, so you know it, you haven't filled it in, or you don't know it, but it gives me a discussion point on a deal review. And then I look at simple things uh, such as overdue actions, and there are no next action. So that's where a CRM works well, I think, is what's your next action, and is it meaningful, and is it moving the thing forward, and is it logged? If there's not with no action, it flags. Because that says to me, you're never going to do anything on it again. Yes, I am, but you, you're you not telling me that. So I can actually look at that without pestering them every five minutes and go, what's happening, what's happening, what's happening? And the other one is overdue actions, stuff that should have happened by a certain date that hasn't. For me, they're the basics. Something's got Absolutely. to happen to drive it to the next point. And when's it happening? And has it happened on time? Or is it deferring? It's basic metrics. Well, I think you've touched on two really important points there as well, which are CRM hygiene and adoption. I think too often, because users are not involved in the purchase and CRM comes from top down, it's imposed, then it's not really implemented as a tool to help sales. It's really implemented as a tool to serve audit. And that's a huge mistake. I was reading some articles yesterday on CRM failure rates, and between 30 and 70% of CRM implementations are deemed failures by the users. And the other thing is CRM hygiene. If the information going into the CRM is weak, incomplete, inaccurate, then as managers, you cannot use that information in order to make good decisions. If you're making an investment in CRM, the objective is to help salespeople sell better, faster, more effectively, more efficiently, not to provide useless data to the finance department. And it's really critical that if you're going to implement CRM, that you involve users, you work out what it is they need help with. And coming back to Ian's point earlier, where are they finding roadblocks? What, what are they struggling with? It's really important to understand how CRM can help them overcome that. And my suggestion there is to have a rock-solid playbook built into the CRM so that even someone new can ramp up very quickly because there is a playbook. What sort of playbooks are you putting in place? I haven't done the playbook route, to be frank with you. So I'm going to contest that. I don't think it's a bad thing. But what I've done is worked closely to your point with the sales team to understand and make fast changes to the CRM to make it, and we're still doing this, I'm not saying we're, you know, we're on a journey, but we live in the CRM world. You know, Marcus, we sell our telephony system is founded around the Salesforce platform. So day in, day out, we are selling to customers who are implementing or have Salesforce and are trying to improve the productivity of their teams and the customer experience when they engage with them. And prior to that, you may remember, I worked for selling CRM for multiple years. So this is very close subject to my heart of, and I agree with you, CRM often fails 
because it's not scoped properly of what's the outcome you're trying to get. It's we want to put something in and there's not that understanding of you can put what you like in, but it can, it can be a big barrier very quickly because data entry, particularly with salespeople, admin, keying stuff, you know, and we're moving to an area where that should get easier and easier through technology. But the human element is the bearer of the data, in my view. I'll give you an example of how you can have, you know, and I'm trying not to do it as an advert, but our phone system in Atterbox in Salesforce means all the phone calls that go on are captured automatically. So I know, and our customers know, that all the people in your business, you can tell this salesperson or this admin, whoever, these are the calls that went on with this client. This salesperson did 62 calls last week, but you can see who they were to and how long they were and were they solid. So to your point that we both agreed on of it's not just about lots of data and it's not about just activity, it's the right activity. We can now give you that you know it's the right activity, right? I don't care if you've done, if you start targeting people on, oh, you have to do 100 calls a day, people will do 100 calls a day to tick a box. You can see data, says they've done it, great. Do you get the outcome you want? Probably not. I'd rather see in the data that you did 12 calls yesterday, but all of them were over 30 minutes, and I can see which customers they were to because that's all automatically logged, and they were to your key opportunities, and they were to this contact. So great, I can see the conversation you're having is the right people and the right size of op. Not you did 100 calls to all the smallest ops you've got because they're the easiest to take your call. Right, so it's not an activity, it absolutely correlates. The data should support, can I see that people are spending the right time on the right things with minimal effort from the salesperson to log the data? Some of it the user has to log, right? You know, was this, the customer wants to be qualified out, or we lost it to this vendor and here's why. That has to be salesperson's expertise in, in questioning and then the output they get putting into the CRM. But it should be about how, as a sales leader, how do you minimize the manual effort to provide the right data? And the data that's provided should also help the sales leader to coach the salesperson. External sales coaches also. I've used the data in the the CRM when I bring an external coach in. Tickle the boxes with GDPR and confidentiality, right, to allow them to do it. But allow them to, to pick opportunities not the salesperson to pick them, to hear the call recordings and to hear the reality of what's going on. So it's not a role play scenario. It's a real, you're using real scenarios that make it real to the salesperson of, that's where you went wrong. This is where you could have done this. So then I found salespeople with coaching buy into it, wrap their arms around it far, far quicker because it feels real rather than a classroom scenario. I think any training, any coaching should be founded in real life. In fact, the more real you make it, the more likely they are to take it up and apply it because all training and all coaching is about creating behavioral and attitudinal change. It's not about giving people theory. So this then brings me to another really important question, which is in terms of the coaching cadence and the frequency with which you coach, how you coach. I'm really curious to learn your thoughts based on your experience of what the most effective ways are to make sure coaching is something that is both welcomed and implemented. Let me step it back for 30 seconds off of that. So the cadence I use with salespeople, you want to keep your good salespeople. I know they're happy. So I have a very basic ongoing measure, which I use with them, is earning, yearning, and learning. And it's just something that struck me. I came up on the south and it happened to rhyme, which helped. Are you earning what you want to earn or can you see that that's coming? You can see the way we're heading and the pipes built and and whatever. The monetary side is ticked, comfortable. Yearning, do you like coming to work? You know, everyone has bad days and challenges, but are you happy, more happy than you are? Where's your frustration? You know, where's that level? And And then the other one is learning. Are you learning? Are you getting better? Do you feel you're better now than you were a year ago? Why? Okay, and what can we do to keep that going? And that isn't just bringing in external training and coaches. It isn't just the manager coaching. Are you guiding them and providing, to your point earlier, the tools for them to self-teach? So I think this this is a whole mix, and it's an important point. Over my career, I've got a lot of salespeople who've worked for me multiple times, which I'm proud of, and also have stayed with good tenure. 
without churn. And a lot of that, I think, is they feel not just that they're earning money or or it's coming, you know, at a bad quarter, but next quarter's going to be good, et cetera, that they're on the right trajectory in terms of earnings, but they're developing. They're getting better and it's fun. If you make it, you know, I'm learning, but I'm enjoying this. Sales is a fun environment. I enjoy it. If you don't enjoy it, there's something wrong. Either you shouldn't be in it or the environment you're in, you're not learning. If you're learning and you're getting better at it, it becomes more fun, right? I see that as a mix of things. One is that the manager, sales leader should be in the respect of the team that they think there are things they can learn from them. But also, as I mentioned earlier, that the sales leader shows that they can learn from their team as well. I always say I'm, I'm not baked. I'm still learning and I'm still open to learning. And when we do coaching and external training, I'm in it as well because I want to learn. I don't act as a sales leader in those meetings. I have my sales hat on of there's still things I'm learning here, guys. I'm not beyond that. We never stop learning. We never, none of us can know it all because we haven't experienced everything. And we've all had different experiences and challenges. So what is that? I bring external coaches in. And that's something I've been challenged on, not where I am today, but in, in my career, I have been challenged of, well, you're the, you're the leader. You should coach them. If you can't coach them, then you're not good enough. And my view on that is, well, A, I don't know everything. B, I have a, an emotional bias towards my salespeople. I can't see it neutrally. You can't. You work with them every day, right? And I think the value of an external coach is they have the experience of working with lots of different sales teams and sales leaders. So they've got knowledge of different challenges and from different industries, which I think is always of value. You get siloed in in the type that you do things. On that note, I think it's really important to recognize that diverse teams overperform compared with teams that come from a particular bubble. And I think one of the worst things that I see on virtually every advert for a job is must have eight years experience selling enterprise solutions to finance. The reality is that people coming from different perspectives, I mean, I I know this from my own experience. I've worked across over 500 different market segments. And Selling any product or service, whether it's tangible or intangible, is actually relatively straightforward. But the stuff I've learned from selling billions or multi-billion pound defense contracts, helping people get those deals over the line, to working with a matchmaking business, to working with a recruitment business, to working with someone selling SaaS, those are all valid and valuable lessons that you can apply Coming from a fresh perspective, I mean, one of the best examples of this was the blindness the CIA had pre-9-11, because the CIA had no Farsi or Arabic speakers in their team looking at the terrorists who drove the planes into the Twin Towers. Now, many of those terrorists were on a watch list, but they hadn't paid any attention because they didn't have the cultural perspective and they didn't have the cultural diversity. Sales teams that come with a mixed background, people coming from lots of different industries, will massively overperform. And in fact, Matthew Syed's book, Rebel Ideas, documents a number of examples where the teams that are diverse will typically overperform. I think it's something like 70% higher performance where you have a diverse team rather than teams that come from living in a bubble. And one of the most important lessons that I've learned along the way because I know both you and I are very avid on social media, Mm. is you need to subscribe to feeds of people whose opinions you disagree with so that you don't live in an echo chamber and you don't buy your own rhetoric. So I think it's very wise of you to take externals to coach and train your people. I do have a question at this stage, which is, do you have a coach? So I have a, a number of coaches. Sometimes, Marcus, you know, we have chats. And I've been in one of your sessions and learned bits. So I, I take feed from lots and lots of people. And I, let me give you context. We've just had, I'm not going to do adverts here, but we just had a, a, a coaching that was recommended to us who was positioned as very different and going to rattle your cage and challenge you. And he did. And it, my whole team, and it was a real eye-opener because – to be frank, there were things where we sat there and I put my hand up and said, you know what, I've never 
there were things we lots of things we should be doing that we haven't been doing and i've never experienced some of the stuff that we went through before so i can't coach people on that because i'd never had the benefit of bumping into that methodology or this person before and it wasn't a band scotsman type methodology it was a what language to use and the language you use and how it affects the person you're talking to in the way they respond and to your point earlier i think of not being the same as everyone else we all use the same language and go through a very with customers we tend to go through the same methodic pattern and customers see it right they feel it of we all feel the same so it challenged us radically. My whole team and myself were all infused, and I was pleased to see that from a team of, do you know what? Everyone was, I've been doing some of this really wrong. No one was defensive, and I was in that room, and that's why I think it's important for a sales leader to be of that demeanor, because otherwise it's they'd come out and say something different. Well, hang on, I don't know what you're talking about. I don't agree with that because I don't understand the context. Whereas I was there going, oh, my God, that's right. How could we apply this? And supportive in the environment. So I think everyone should be listening, reading, and embedding. And I always, I've said the phrase already, I'm not baked yet, and I never will be, because even if you got really, really good, your competition, which is the customer in a way, or the buyer, they're changing as well. The customer is changing all the time. We live now in a world of mobile phones, smart devices, the web that provides information and peer reviews. So the customer can look up you as an individual, and we're not talking about personal brand here, but I often talk about that. You know, how do you look? What's their first impression of you before, before they even meet you? They can have a first impression and have seen stuff about you, your company, reviews of your company, good, bad, indifferent, whether they're right or wrong, your glass door review, what you like as an employee, everything. The customer, if they choose to, can have an incredible insight into everything about you and have questions that 10 or 15 years ago, they couldn't have had those questions because they didn't have the data insight to be able to ask them the context. And we're also living in a world, depending what you're selling, and to your point, it varies greatly, where the buyer or the customer in any way has a different expectation level. We expect everything fast because the world we live in is, is like an accelerated, it used to be, I'd say it was the MTV world. Now I think it, it's like MTV on acid, you know, we can go on Amazon and order 24-7 and get the product by Prime. I can order something now and it'd be this afternoon type thing. Customers' expectations of response of all this stuff have been heightened by the Uber, Airbnb, Amazon world they live in, rightly or wrongly. That changes their persona, their behavior. So the salespeople, if we stay stuck 15 years ago, and a lot of salespeople I interview are stuck 15 years ago, and don't even have a social media account because I don't want to tweet about my sandwich. But that's not what social media is about. You can listen. The same as you do in a meeting. Listening is important. You can listen. You can listen to the customer. If your person you're about to see is on social media and tweets about things and writes about them, you can learn an awful lot about them before you meet them of the type of character. And you often can find, I have been lucky enough to find, reference points. Instead of I can see a picture of your boat on the oh you like sailing you know the old one is you walk in the office and you find something a commonality point of discussion you can do that before you go there and i've been into meetings before where i've had salespeople with me i said ed say um two people in the meeting i said so you two must like each other. you two seem to follow each other around the industry because they've worked in three companies the same together and straight away they were like oh my a, they were impressed that I'd done the research and it ended up in a whole conversation. Oh, yeah, well, he followed me to this one. and But that one um, was, no, that was funny. And this straight away, there was rapport based on I'd spotted one interesting thing from social media that was relevant that, how did you two come here? Who came here first? And I think people just ignore that. I think we, we see a lot of salespeople stuck in the past who think they're baked, have stopped learning and social selling, don't know what it is, social media, not on it, and aren't actually that good, I'm, I'm afraid. They, they may have survived 15 years ago, but when I interview them, they don't, and this, they, I'm sure you'll drill into this, they don't behave like a salesperson in the interview. And well, from my respect in the interview, the one, I'll leave you with this point, as a salesperson, you have been trained to be the best at interviews because an interview is meeting someone new and using every skill you should have as a salesperson to sell the one product you know better than anyone on the planet, which is you. And if you cannot do that effectively, I just think, what hope is there for you as a salesperson? I think one 
critical characteristic that is deeply lacking in many salespeople is genuine curiosity. That you need to be curious. And in order to be curious, you need to be willing to ask questions and listen. I think too often salespeople are in a rush to get to the bit where they can look good and they can present and they can be the center of attention. It's our job as a salesperson not to be the center of attention. We, we are the Sherpa and the prospect is the hero. They're the Sir Edmund Hillary. Our job is to make them feel understood, feel heard. And people want other people to experience their experience. And if you're turning up and your objective is to peddle your product, you will build resistance. So curiosity is absolutely key. And it's one of the key criteria I look for, whatever type of sales you're in. I think you need to be curious. And I want evidence that you have evolved in the last six months, the last 12 months. I want to know that you are better today than you were yesterday and that that is a habit. And I think a learning habit is really important. I think listening habit is really important, a questioning habit, and not the bland information gathering question, which every Tom, Dick and Harry does. That type of housekeeping question, you should probably have done most of that by doing the basic research on the internet and spoken to low-level people within the organization. When you speak to a prospect, yes, you need to understand, but more importantly, through your research, you need to ask questions that deliver genuine insight to the prospect so that they see their own world through a different lens. And particularly when you're selling high-ticket solutions to the C-suite that are strategic, it's really important that you bring value. Now, I was interviewing Amy Franco a couple of weeks back, and she came up with a really depressing statistic that KPMG's research showed up, which is that only six minutes in every hour that salespeople were in front of the C-suite, the C-suite considered to have added value. Now, that is a damning indictment of our so-called profession. And it's a damning indictment of managers who are allowing salespeople to go out there and deliver so little value in a meeting. Yes, we're there to gather information. And we deliver our value through asking insightful, challenging, uncomfortable, demanding questions. But many, many salespeople are afraid of asking tough questions because they're afraid of not being liked. So again, how do you coach your people to get past this desperate need to be loved by strangers? That's part of the investing in the training and coaching externally that, that we've had. That's a big part of what we've just gone through is understanding the difference between rapport and relationship. And that was a big eye-opener that we had that was we had relationship. When we analyzed and went through it, well, no, what we've been building with customers is rapport. And there's a big difference and a big chasm between rapport and relationship. And a good example, and I, uh, he said on it, and I'm sure it might be plagiarism, but I thought was a fantastic eye-opener to it, was if you go up to someone in the street, say, excuse me, good morning, Marcus. I hope you don't mind. Well, I wouldn't know your name, right? <laughs> Except, uh, good morning. I hope you wouldn't mind. Could you give me the time? You're going to give me the time, right? Because I've been friendly and there's a, enough rapport for what I'm asking you to do. I'm asking for a very small thing. But if I, in the street, just went... Excuse me, yeah, I've really got stuck. Can you lend me 10 quid? You know the answer you get from most people because the ask you're getting outweighs the rapport you've built. If you had a relationship, though, Marcus, I said, look, I really need 10 quid. You're going to go, well, Ian, yeah, can I help? You're going to help, right? If it's a friend or someone you have a relationship with, you're not going to be in the what's going on here, this is a scam, because the relationship's there. You're probably just going to hand the 10 quid. Yeah, how can I help? I've got 20 if you need it. So it was understanding that chasm that we, and I think a lot of salespeople go through that, having just learned that lesson ourselves of we're very assumptive to, because someone's nice and pleasant to us, that we now have a relationship, but so is the competition. You know, I don't think there's many meetings you can walk into where someone's going to be, they've invited you and a competitor in. Well, they're not going to be rude. It's not going to be signal to you. They don't like you. And they're not going to push you and go, well, I don't like it. You know, their nature and demeanor is going to be pleasant. And you are going to get given a coffee and it's going to feel all nice. That, for me, is one of the 
key question we said I had the meeting I was a really good meeting huh. why why <laughs> why we got on with them really well okay so what but so probably the, what has got on with me they're not going to be horrible people that make it obvious if you weren't going to get on you know so it doesn't mean they're going to buy from you it means they're pleasant people because they deal with people and they're probably pleasant to the other people that just came in so you've built rapport so the others so it's understanding so how you go further in the language and that's what we're going through at the moment I'll be frank with you that's that's a big lesson we've learned of we have had a fairly good customer win rate so we're not broken, but we can be better. We can win the right deals with a higher win rate and move away. I think you mentioned earlier from the ones that actually, I don't want my salespeople chasing everything because they have to. I would rather we work with the real absolute perfect square peg, square hole as rather than the, the, the circle square hole where we can probably fit this, but we're not the perfect fit, but we don't have enough in the pipe, so we'll figure it out. And that's hard, right? It's qualifying. What I'm pushing on this is listening and qualifying to the point of if we have to walk away, let's walk away sooner, which is a benefit to the client. But we explain why, which does build more rapport and potentially lead relationship for later because there's transparency involved. And how many people say to a customer, I'm not so sure we're right for you. Help me, help me understand why you're not going to stay at where you are. I think you're going to choose someone else. Why? Challenge, to your point, challenge them with questions that are different from the ones everyone else are asking, which are, when are you going to buy this and what's your budget? And they've heard it 50 times and they've got their answers baked and caked. You're just going to get the same answer the competition's got. Absolutely. I mean, I wrote a piece yesterday which was mildly controversial. And the basic premise is banter's bollocks. You see salespeople asking the question, do you have a budget? Yes. Are you the decision maker? Yes. Is there a project? Yes. And when were you thinking of starting it? Yes. And they tick those boxes. That's not qualification. You've got facts, right? That's well, all. you haven't. State what or statements. What you've got is someone saying yes to stuff when, in fact, they're the janitor in charge of bleach. That's a good point. Because you know, buyers have never lied to salespeople in the history <laughs> of selling. You've got to be really careful. Your job is to go out there and diagnose, is there a problem that we are the best people to help to fix? And if we're not, we have to tell them, In got to be honest, we're not it. What you're looking for isn't what we do best. Yeah. Let me recommend my biggest competitor because it's right in their sweet spot. When you're looking at budget, budget is not, do you have a budget? You need to know how much, where it is, whose pot of money it is, how it's going to be released. Are there any conditions or policies in place that would prevent you from being able to have? Well, Marcus, I challenge it even at more at a fundamental level of, do you only speak to people when you're looking to spend money? Yeah. Right? Why wouldn't you talk to me anyway? I'm not, I don't care whether you've got budget. How many times has a budget been created for something because the value has been shown, but there was no budget initially, right? Absolutely. Imperfect employee comes along and you haven't got that head slotted right now that smart business go, well let's have a look at them okay well let's figure out how we can get them on board we'd be an idiot to miss them but there wasn't any budget there was no job spec there was no but so an opportunity presented itself how many businesses have acquired another company when they weren't on the market looking for one but they spotted something and thought we need to look at this and then Absolutely. they went and got the investment to do it right so i think budget is a misleader in the first place because well, having that, no budget what, doesn't mean you won't spend that's where i was headed because in terms of budget you need to have not only ability, but more importantly, willingness. Because if there is a high enough willingness to find the budget, they will. If all you're doing is going after the budget that is a line item in the budget forecast that was put together nine months ago, then you're cutting your legs off because chances are that's going to be at what they deem to be market rate, not based on the value that you bring. And you have to uncover way more information and budget isn't just about money. It's about time. It's about resource. It's about access. If you don't have access to the people, the estate that you need to qualify, then you have no business taking it forward to the next stage. If you don't understand the decision-making process, who's in the cast of characters, who's on-site, who's neutral, unknown, off-site, if you don't understand what the process is, do you have to comply with investors and people, ISO 9001? 
You have to have an anti-slavery policy. You have to have been trading for three years or more. If you haven't investigated and uncovered all of that information and established that they are both able and, more importantly, willing to make the decision, then you're on a hiding to nothing and you have no business presenting. We're speaking to one prospect a while back, and they have a 3% conversion rate on demos. But they insist on doing demos right at the upfront at the beginning of the sales process because they think somehow their better mousetrap will sell itself. Well, they're spending most of their time talking to people who cannot make a decision, at best can influence it only mildly, and are basically on a free consulting junket in order to improve their education. So again, I think the discipline, the rigor of being a salesperson requires you to think around your customers' problems, to be able to see the world through their eyes, and to practice, practice, practice. And you have to practice intentionally with the deliberate intention to improve. Perfect practice makes perfect. Practice, you know, me going around the golf course hacking away the way I do without any intention to improve my swing just means I'll reinforce my ability to find water, sand, and woods and long grass. It's not going to improve my ability to cut the number of shots it takes to get to the hole. So, Look, we're coming to the top of the hour, and there was one other topic that's really important to me that I'd like to cover, which is the challenges that uh, CSOs, chief sales officers, are facing around recruitment and onboarding and retention of top talent. What's your advice in terms of the best practice around recruitment as a habit? So I think you should always be looking out for the market. So I'm recruiting at the moment. Careful saying that because I have every recruiter phoning saying they're the best and got the best candidate. It's right? all right. My audience isn't that big. <laughs> <laughs> but it's hard. Right? That's the hardest part, I think, of a sales leader's role because it's the propensity where you can, if you get it wrong, it's how quickly do you find out you've got it wrong and what impact it has on the rest of your team as well. So for me, bringing someone in, it's the capability of that individual to perform. It's the fit of them into the team and the culture of the business. And you want to de-risk it, right? And I get that. And I've been through, I've been on both sides of this. And it's interesting being a candidate, the behaviors I watch. So some of the behaviors that I think are bad, which maybe I'll give a, a clue here are. So you go to the interview and say, hey, we think you're great, but we've got to get comparison. Uh-huh. We've got to go and see five of the. And I always go through the, well, you don't want me for the role then because you'd hire me. Well, no, no, we want, but we have to get comparison. Why do you need to get comparison? Either this person is the person you want to hire or it's not. And I would say to candidates, don't worry about, I'm not, if I think you're the right person and we go through the right process, I'm not going to go out and look. I need three months to look at five other candidates to validate that I'm choosing the right one. It's people are scared to make a decision. I think it's they're scared of the consequence if it goes wrong. Therefore, it's on their heads. And well, how many did you look at? Well, I only looked at one. Well, therefore, you're wrong. I think you've touched on something that's really important. They haven't identified and designed what the ideal candidate looks like because they haven't done the preparation. So when they see it, they don't recognize it. Most people recruit on gut and on the drivel that goes into a CV. The CV is basically lying in print in the same way that most job interviews are two adults lying through their teeth. The problem is that very few people know how to design a hiring template, then design the interview process in order to elicit answers that will tell you whether or not you have the right person in front of you. And they're so fixated on getting back to their day job because they don't see recruitment as their number one responsibility. And they see it as an interference, a chore. I remember when I was in recruitment, I had some clown phone me up and say, can you fax me across the CV? So it tells you how long ago this was. And this was about two minutes after the interview was due to start. Now, what that meant was his entire preparation was going to be the walk from his office to the interview room, which was about 70 seconds. And then he was going to go in to interview somebody who he was going to spend the price of a small mortgage on and who was going to be responsible for multi-millions in revenues and profits. And that was the lazy sloppy way that they were approaching recruitment. If you design the candidate and you identify what must-haves, what the nice-to-haves are, and what the red flags are, so that if you spot those, you can recognize them 
dig deeper, qualify and confirm them yep. so that you can make sure you don't make that hire, then you'll prevent a lifetime of problems. Because in my experience, at least 95% of management problems start with bad hiring. If you'd hired the right people in the first place, you wouldn't be spending your time putting out fires with clowns and non-performance. So the whole recruitment process, I believe, is broken. And it's cultural and it's attitudinal. And it comes from leadership. And HR, they definitely have their place. Good HR people are worth their weight in gold. Unfortunately, you should not have HR be doing the first pass or even the last pass with your salespeople. What HR should be doing is making sure that the contract is right for both people, that the offer is done well, that the offer and acceptance and notice period is managed well. Yes, they may be involved to ensure cultural fit, but they need to be part of that process of designing the hiring template. And recruitment outsourced to either a recruiter or an HR function, I think, is a dereliction of responsibility. And that is, an, again, an act of gross negligence on the part of the sales well, leader. Let, let me give you this, Mark. Having been a candidate, right, I've had redundancies in my career, liquidations of companies. So I've had some unfortunates, right, and, and you've had ones where mergers of companies and people go, regardless, you can argue whether you're the right person yeah. or not, right? But So I've been on the market and gone through that, and I've been through the process, a number of things you've mentioned, I think, in our chat today, where they haven't known the criteria, they want to compare to us, and I always try and close them down, do everything I can to be a sales behavior. And I get, so one of my questions as a candidate is always, on a scale of one to 10, you may like this or not, but it works for me, a scale of one to 10, one being I'm the worst candidate you've ever seen, 10, the best, where'd you place me? Oh, an eight. Okay, what would have made me a nine today? So straight away, I've got you, and I'm demonstrating sales capability. And Right, I know where I stand. If you say a four, right, okay, I'm obviously not the right candidate. Just give me any feedback so I can learn from it. And I also position to them any feedback you want to give me of how I've performed the interviews. I'd welcome, because if I'm not selected today, at least you're empowering me to be the better in the next interview I go to to help me as an individual. So I'd really welcome that because you give me some information. And no one asks them that stuff. And so I'm different straight away and I'm behaving like a salesperson. But I've seen exactly what you said earlier. Uh, yeah, when I haven't been selected, can I have a debrief? Would you mind if I understand why? Not, not personal. I just want to understand what I could have done. And invariably, a lot of the time it was, well, Ian, you're great, all the sales stuff, all the sales leadership, but we had a candidate who had five years selling our competitor's product. Invariably, it was something to your point, wasn't the sales skills, it was a tick box of they've sold to that vertical and you, you've only had a year bit of experience selling to manufacturing. They've spent five years selling to manufacturing. Therefore, immediately, it's a safe bet, right? And I'd argue, well, it's not necessarily because they're going to bring the same old, same old approach that they've done. I may have a new, fresh approach that outperforms the people you've got, but you don't know that, but you've ticked a box that you're safe. And the number of times I've watched, and there's a couple where I've watched, because it's sales leadership, it's easier to know the position, right? You can yeah. see that they've got, and they've not been there more than seven or eight months. Yeah. So that how did our hire work? I'm not saying I'd have been perfect or stay, you know, but the way you judge the metrics didn't work for you. For me, hiring, when I interview a salesperson, I start with the attitude of you've got the job when you walk in the room. Don't screw it up. How far are you going to move away from? I want you, I want a salesperson, I've got a role on paper. So you take that as the gate to get in, right? On paper, there's something that says you're right. Yeah, or on LinkedIn, you have to look at something, not just a name. And to your point, I don't always look at the same industry and they must have been selling SaaS. What I look for is that it looks, signs are you're a good salesperson. And what I want to see is who you are as an individual. How do you behave? And I'm shocked by how many salespeople walk into an interview and they don't have a pad. 3% of them, this is big percentage, sit down, might have a bag, might not some of them. And they've been in sales for 20 years. And they chat to me and they're making it up on the phone. Don't bring their own career points. So if I ask them one question about their LinkedIn, well, I know it's on LinkedIn, you da da da. And they're struggling because they've got nothing in front of them. I can't remember every date of every job I've had. Who can? But they haven't prepared for what I might ask. And the other thing is they haven't researched me or anything. So I'll often go, so how well do you know such and such? Oh, I'm really good. I worked with them for three years. Okay, so how would they, what would they tell me? Because I know them really well. How would they tell? They didn't realize, they hadn't spotted the connection in reverse 
and thought through, and then you can see them flummoxed by that. Uh, well, I'll call them right now. They haven't had time to prep them for the call, right? I'll, I'll call Dave right now. What's he going to tell me about you? Is he going to tell me to hire you or not? And you can see the fear. But you could have found out that we're connected to Dave and worked that out and looked at where I worked before and gone, oh, crikey, where are I? Okay. And perhaps self-qualified you out of that three-hour journey to come and see me because you know that question's going to come up. You know, make it easy for me to hire you is the message. I want to hire a salesperson that shows me you're a salesperson. You're sat in front of me. I'm seeing one, funny enough, today, Marcus, who I've employed before. And they, the first time I employed them, blew me away. They did exactly that. It blew me away. I could not hire them because they behaved to me exactly like a salesperson, did everything, nailed it, nailed it, nailed it. You haven't moved me away from, I want to hire you. You've left me exactly there at the end. We're done. I'm not comparing you to other people. How fast can I get you on board? Bang. If you have a candidate in front of you, you should want them to be your next hire. If you're doing stand-up, the audience doesn't want you to fail. If you're doing a public speaking stint, the audience doesn't want you to corpse on stage. They want you to be successful. And the problem, I think, is that so many salespeople go into the interview worried because they don't see themselves as having equal business stature. They are selling themselves as a personal services corporation, selling their expertise for money. The hiring manager has a problem. And you could very well be the solution to that problem. But they turn up and they're passive. If I see a candidate who is passive and is just waiting for me to ask some questions, that's a re- really big red flag. So one of my favorite opening questions is, great, Ian, really been looking forward to meeting you. Over to you. Now, 19% oh, I love that. I'll use that. That's good. Because yeah. <laughs> if they haven't got a plan and they haven't thought through the questions, and the only questions they have is when their holidays are or when they're up for a pay rise, that bodes ill. Okay, three final questions. What are you reading, listening to, watching that's really influencing you, or a great book that you've read in your past that you'd like to recommend to the audience? So there's not one particular one. I know everyone likes to have a canned answer for this because it all sounds great, right? But I... For me, I'm listening to lots of podcasts because you can do them on the move. Perfect for salespeople, right? And my team are. And looking at things like the content that comes out from Top Sales World, the Association of Professional Sales, Institute of Sales Management. And then people like Joanne Black, Mark Hunter, Deb Calvert. On social, there are so many. And you don't have to believe all of it or adopt all of it. But if you're not looking, I'm always looking for those nuggets of marginal gains. Where's that small tip where someone else, somewhere else in the world is sharing something? They go, oh my God, that's so simple. Might be a phrase, might be a technique, might be whatever it is, right? So as a salesperson, sales leader, you have an opportunity today to learn more, more easily than ever before in history. Absolutely. Because it's in front of you on the move. If you're in a taxi and you've got nothing to do and you're in your email, you can have a quick look at your feed, right? That's why you want to be on social media. You don't have to be publishing stuff. You know, I write stuff, you write stuff, but you don't have to do that. You can listen and you can pick up tips and some of them you might not like. So you don't use them. Absolutely. On the listening front, Mark Goldston, just listen, and you're not listening. What you're missing and why it matters by Kate Murphy are two very good books on the the single most critically important skill I think any salesperson can have because you listen and ask your way into a sale, you talk your way out of it. I don't think anyone has ever listened their way out of a job or out of a sale. And too often salespeople are too keen to talk. Okay, so golden ticket time. If you had a golden ticket and you could advise the idiot Ian age 23 to avoid a lifetime of stress, misery and self-sabotage, what advice would you give him? I think one, one simple thing, focus on what matters. I've been guilty and I see salespeople go, and I've joined, this is one of the things I bring to businesses when I come in is I do a lot of listening of what's going on for several months of figuring out rather than just come in and go, I know everything. Three days later, I make all the changes. It's understanding. And invariably, I find there's a lot of focus on the wrong things. There's a lot of activity and often it's on deal size. People are running around on lots of, if you can close three deals and do your deals year's number rather than 400, which one's more productive for you and the company? Now that's an extreme 
both ends. So it's getting the balance. But what is your ideal customer to maximize the value to the customer and the revenue to our business? And if you can pick those out, go after those. Don't chase everything because you want to win everything. And that's, you know, don't bore the ocean is advice I was given. So prioritize and say no to lots of stuff. Yeah. Good advice. Okay. What are you struggling with yourself at the moment? So the biggie, Mark, is no different, I think, to the majority of sales leaders that I talk to out there is, you know, inbound lead flow. Now, part of that solution is the salespeople self-creating, right? Yeah. But you always want to have inbound leads from whatever source. And I think that's the hardest part in any business right now because the customer's changed. How many people go, please, someone contact me. I really need you to contact me. And often when they do, how many times, and I know this is a subject uh, we won't go into now, but you've, you've spoken of before, how many times are you fodder? Yeah. Have you just been brought in as we just need a comparison, but we already know probably who our favorite is or we're going with. So, but we're going to make you do loads of effort and activity to satisfy our goals, but it, you're not going to get the business anyway. So for me, it's really about that lead flow, the process, the qualification, and making sure salespeople don't get distracted because I think it's too dangerous for marketing teams can have different KPIs, go and generate 400 what they consider leads, but now the salespeople get pressure to put lots of activity into. Otherwise, they're in trouble by the CEO because marketing's tell me you've got 400 leads and you haven't followed up 300 of them. And now we've got a total disconnect. I wouldn't say I'm struggling. We've got a very good relationship with marketing, but now the challenge is we've honed that down to we don't want a volume of leads. We want the right ones. But that now creates a new challenge, right, is how do you do that in a world where traditional advertising, marketing, just doing all the old stuff doesn't produce the same results. You've got to do things differently. I think there are a couple of things that we can do to tackle that that certainly work really well. One is look at the ecosystem in which you operate. So is there any organic growth so you can sell more to your existing customers? More of the same, different product, and you can increase your wallet share. Then you can look at your the family tree. So are there parent companies, sister companies, subsidiaries? Then look at their JV and partner network, the supply chain. Also, have a look at the customer's customer. Chances are, if you're doing a good job, there will be opportunities there. And ask for introductions to the customer's customer. If you've helped them, then help their customers be successful. I, I totally agree with that. And I'd add one to that, Marcus, is in today's world, also look for who is the investor in that Absolutely. company you've won because they will be investing in other companies that they want to be successful. If, you're, if you've made one of their investments more successful and productive, isn't there a chance they'll want their other companies? So to your point, sell upwards, but also into the investor, ask for an introduction. We've, we've helped you. Can you help? Who are, and it's easy to find out who an investment company invests in. So you can see the list of companies off the page and start prospecting into them. So that works well as well. Absolutely. Brilliant. Ian, thank you so much. I've really enjoyed the conversation. How can people get hold of you? Thanks, Marcus. I, I have too, always. Uh, yes, you can reach me on social media at ianmoist.co.uk and ianmoist.cloud. And that, that's another little tip there. If you want to be personally branded, they'll take you to my key social profiles. Brilliant. Thanks again. So this is Marcus Cowkey signing off from the Inquisitor podcast. If you would make a great guest to come on to the podcast, please email me at m-c-a-u-c-h-i at sander.com. And if there's somebody that you believe would be a great guest, please make an introduction or tell me who they are and I'll attempt to get them on as a guest as well. Happy selling. Bye-bye.